Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of the Hired Geek Podcast, episode number 152 with Dr. Dana Mitra, uh, focusing on faculty success. Uh, really appreciate this opportunity to dig in with an area that, uh, you know, obviously is a huge part of higher education, but I just don't really have much exposure and experience with. So uh, I get uh, a lot of these conversations and so grateful for uh, Dana and the work that she does in this space and all of her expertise. Uh, definitely go connect with her to keep the conversation going and go check out her new book, The Empowered Professor. Uh, link out to that in the show notes. Uh, but without further ado, uh, after this brief message from our sponsor, this is episode number 152, a bonus episode with Dr. Dana Mitra. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right. We are here for this episode. I'm excited to explore the experiences of faculty members at higher ed institutions. So uh, experience that I am not uh, personally familiar with, so I know I'll get a lot out of this episode, but uh, super important, obviously, for uh, folks on the staff member side uh, who are part of our audience who uh, you know, are going to be working with faculty, should be working with them, and maybe how to do that better, how to know just more about their experience and all that. So we will explore a lot for this episode, sort of high level, the faculty experience, but we'll get into it uh, without further ado. Uh, start out as we always do. Dana, if you want to introduce yourself and go over your professional background and how you get to be where you are today. Sure. My name is Dana Mitra. I'm a professor at Penn State, and my research as a faculty member looks at ways that um, in education policy that young people can have a voice in decision-making processes. I used to be an elementary school teacher and I became a faculty member when a fifth grade student said, you know, I think you'd rather be a fifth grade student than a fifth grade teacher. And he was right. I just love understanding young people and sitting on their side of the desk and really trying to make sense of them. So um, I went back to get my PhD at Stanford in education policy, and I've been at Penn State ever since. Um, and what I came to realize as I was moving through being a faculty member was that I needed support myself in understanding work-life balance and um and the purpose of everything, uh, as somebody who has had success on the academic side, um, I I got a lot of reward for reaching towards all the gold stars and um, accomplishing things. And and after I got through all of my promotions and became a professor, I I kind of hit that mid career crisis of what is this all about? And um, so getting some coaching myself in terms of understanding what that looked like, I came to realize that that the skills of a coach might be something useful for me to have because I, as a leader, also from graduate students to colleagues to friends, have get gotten called upon to help folks to discern and make sense of their own processes. So as I started to coach myself, I came to realize that the framework that I've used for making sense of young people really is a framework that that's true for all adults and not just kids around the things they need to be successful in life. And that's why I've written my most recent book, The Empowered Professor, Breaking the Unspoken Codes of Inequity in Academia, because making sense of, of the academic world is part 
trying to get all that information that isn't written down in the handbook on the one side. And then on the other side, it's, it's developmental work that's true for anyone in any job of how do I find an internal reason of having this be a calling or whether this is a calling versus a job? And how do I make connection with to the people that I'm working with? And then what are the competencies of, or the skills that need to be done? So I call that the ABCs. The agency is that calling part of knowing why I'm doing the work. The belonging is how do I work with my colleagues and competencies or what are the skills I need to be successful? So breaking the code and then the ABCs are the two pieces of the work that I'm doing right now. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, I think just what I heard or sort of felt through uh, a lot of what you do is like, like an empathy, you know, like that, even just like the idea is like, well, you know, you know, kind of uh, getting around the desk and really, you know, understanding the experience of your uh, fifth grade students, and then uh, kind of moving forward, working with faculty and, you know, uh, wanting them to work better together and kind of have just better experiences themselves all around. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's, that's really great. Uh, so Again, you know, it's an experience that uh, is kind of foreign to me. So I was going to like, you know, to take a moment uh, for folks that we have uh, uh, like yourself. And, you know, I've done this with like some of the presidents we've had on uh, the podcast as well. It's just like, what do you enjoy most about being a faculty member? Because, again, you know, it seems like, you know, education at large is sort of a calling for you. But, you know, you did make that kind of deliberate shift to uh, uh, be a faculty member and been working uh, in this sort of space for a while. So what, what do you enjoy most about this? Yeah, I. I think being a faculty member brings a lot of flexibility to the work that I do, and I have a lot of choice in the work that I do. So uh, being being a mom of two kids who are now heading off to college, but I was able to create my work life in a way that I had a full-time professional job, but I could also be there for the soccer games, be there for the bus pickup. It meant I was working in the middle of the night a lot of the times as well as the morning, but um, but there was a freedom around being able to create my schedule. And I really also appreciated a job in which I'm rewarded for the work that I do and not the hours that I'm doing it or where I'm doing it. So I can work just about anywhere and I'm rewarded on the quality of my job Um, that I think there's a trade-off in terms of freedom and power, for example, of being on the administrative side of a university um, in terms of not necessarily having um, being right in the mix on decisions and kind of learning about them afterwards versus having that ability to make my own decisions. I also just, you know, I'm an intellectually curious person. I I, I, my whole life, I've just loved to read and I love the idea of questions and I love the idea of knowledge. So, so the faculty responsibilities of teaching and learning and research and writing, I love writing, I love researching. Um, so, so those, that skill set is something that um, is really meaningful to me and, and allows me to do the things I love to do and to get paid for them. So that's why I, that's why being a faculty member is a great fit for for the work that I do. Well, yeah, and I think too, just like because I think it's sort of interrelated and in, in what you're speaking about there, like that, yeah, you like you get to focus in on sort of a, a concept or sort of a you know field of work and that sort of thing. Where um, I guess for myself, I'm definitely more of like a generalist. Like I like just sort of dabbling in things, but certainly you know for people who are called to be 
you know, faculty members at uh, colleges and universities, like you can really deep dive on, you know, your special specialization and uh, yeah, just, you know, yeah, be, be curious and uh, explore all the things, but uh, yeah. And, and maybe I'll be so like, yeah, I think like, you know, I found that to be a huge benefit as well, kind of working full-time remotely um, where, yeah, like just kind of clicking into that space where uh, you can work when you're most productive. That is what you are uh, measured on and not just, you know, sitting in a cubicle, twiddling your thumbs because it's just about, you know, kind of having your butt in your seat the whole time, you know, just sort of the perception of productivity or uh, those sort of things. So, um, yeah, that's all great stuff. And I think um, maybe on the other side of the coin, because I think, you know, that all kind of speaks to, this is the broad day-to-day of being a faculty member, but I think it is one of the uh, positions that people maybe uh, misconstrue, uh, misunderstand, uh, you know, they just make assumptions about. So um, I'm sure you've encountered some of that yourself. So what do you think most people kind of misconstrue about being a faculty member? I think in the academic world, when I'm around provosts and, and um, higher leadership and, and staff, um, there, there can be a sense that faculty act entitled, faculty are clueless about what's really going on. Um, they're kind of in their own worlds. Um, they're, they can be very esoteric. And I think there's a couple of things that's important to understand if you work in academia from the faculty side. I think, first of all, we are very detached from what's happening and why is happening. And I don't think there's often a lot of communication to faculty to understand reasons behind decisions. So we tend to hear about a lot of things at the at the last moment. Um, and I think also as, as researchers, we're trained to be extremely logical. And a lot of what happens in bureaucracy has absolutely nothing to do with logic. And so it gets very frustrating. Um, there's also... I think an assumption and an understanding in the bylaws that there is a shared governance practice that faculty are supposed to be involved in things. I think in the pandemic, especially um, decisions have had to been made very quickly without as much transparency. You can't just show up to a meeting or things like that. So um, a lot of faculty at a lot of places are trying to push back to try to preserve that shared governance and um, an understanding around that. So I think, um, on the staff side in particular, a, we, there's a concept in policy we called um, a street-level bureaucrat, and that's the, the face of the policy. And I think staff members often end up being the ones to deliver or explain to faculty members what is happening. And wh- when things go poorly, faculty members treat staff as if they created the policy. <laughs> they may not even agree with the policy. And I think um, a smart way to approach faculty is to say, this is the way, this, this is the decision that was brought forward to me, and I'm communicating it to you. Let's figure out how to move forward together, or how can I help you to make sense or, or to be comfortable in this framework? I didn't create it. I'm the one that's, you know, assigned to help you move through it. Um, I think doing a little bit of reminding faculty that these 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 hardworking staff members are not usually the ones that created the policy and are maybe even as frustrated as they are by certain um, things they're expected to do allows everyone to be on the same team. Um, 
and reminds faculty that they, um, you know, that 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 there is a lot of frustration all around when something comes down. Um, so I would say those are some things. Um, I could go into more around those, but I I I think we're in a time where there's less resources in a university. There's more time crunching and pressure. And the structures that have been set up to make decisions are too slow often. And yet we need to, how decisions get made is often more important than what they are. So taking the time to explain why things are happening, how they're happening um, to faculty that tend to be not in the center of a communication network, but at the, on the periphery of things can help to bring people together to, and bring faculty together to want to want to support or at least try to um, be okay with certain decisions that are being made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm definitely going to set up our uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about, but uh, just to sit with this for a moment, like it's kind of funny what I'm hearing or kind of what you're getting at is that like sometimes like at the core of it is that, yeah, like because of all those sort of mitigating factors and things going on, like decision-making may be happening uh not in the best way that it could or should. So then you have this messenger uh, coming and kind of relaying things. And then there's sort of butting of heads and friction and all that. So it's like, you know, by no fault of the staff member or the faculties, uh, you know, because of maybe just other things going on, you know, other forces at play, you know, that's when there's uh, sort of the misconceptions, misunderstandings and things and uh, why a faculty member might be, you know, coming off a certain way to, a, you know, somebody else uh, is just, uh, yeah, kind of just by, by no fault of their own. And I think, um, you know, that, that is just kind of a current struggle for all those reasons that you mentioned. Uh, but yeah, so I think, you know, this may vary, um, and I'm sure you'll maybe get into just the different contexts that faculty can work, but um, yeah, there, you know, higher ed just generally is facing no shortage of headwinds and uh, difficulties and uh, certainly the past few years have been a lot of uh, you know unpredictable things going on. But uh, I'm curious, maybe just how you know what's going to be kind of resonating with you about um, as we're beginning to emerge, uh, and I'm sure looking ahead to like you know the fall semester and things like you know as we're recording this, we're kind of right in the thick of uh, typical spring semesters. So you know, looking ahead to the future, maybe even like. Uh, what are some of the current struggles that faculty face and just any advice that you'd have for um, overcoming them, whether that's kind of just, you know, purely on the faculty side or just sort of, you know, collectively for faculty kind of working within um, the higher ed systems? I think as we're coming, hopefully coming out of a pandemic, if we're going to be having much more face-to-face experiences, um, there's we've lost two years in, in in an institution where, you know, students often aren't there for more than four. Uh, so a lot of culture and traditions on the student side are certainly gone, but also on the faculty side, I have colleagues who I've never met in person yet. I've staff, our staff has almost fully turned over um, as a part of, you know, the great resignation or whatever they're calling it right now. So, um, so there is a huge need in universities to rebuild connection, rebuild community, to um, build structures for collaboration. And, you know, I think some of the most foolish things that have happened um, in my experience in universities, and this was, you know, starting with the recession um, um, in the 2000s, is this kind of, you know, 
eliminating opportunities to have food and fellowship, for example, and the importance around um, of building building community around a little bit of food, for example, or or creating spaces to learn about each other beyond what happens in a Zoom conversation, to know what's going on in the the broader parts of people's lives um, really makes a difference in terms of when there is conflict or there are problems to solve, to see the whole person and to understand why people might have different reactions to things. So I don't know if um, universities have been particularly strong in building community in recent years. And certainly now that we're coming back, it has to be such an intentional focus in ways that we haven't before around new systems for doing that, um, but also kind of intentional ways to think about what that might be. So um, I think belonging and connection in terms of the ABCs, the B around belonging is going to be the most critical as we make sense of what it's like to be back together while being aware that there's a fatigue around not being used to being in front of people all the time anymore. And so there's there's going to be some effort around learning how to work together again. Yeah. Yeah, we can just pause there. I'm sure you maybe have some other stuff, but like I will uh, kind of plus one that for sure is that I've been uh, starting to get out and, you know, it's been something that I, I always want to incorporate in a thoughtful way, working from home on my own, you know, full time. And I've been doing that for the past three years, so even before, you know, everybody else kind of shifted too. So like um, it, it has taken more out of me uh, these uh, past couple of uh, instances where I've had really a kind of high impact, intense socialization, but I'm like, yeah, I just got to get my sea legs under me again, you know, mm-hmm. like that's just part of it and just earnestly, you know, wanting to do it. And there's certainly going to be some inertia too for a lot of people. I think it's going to be harder for some people to kind of emerge uh, and even kind of get out in the first place. And then just when they do, you got to respect everybody's, uh, you know, be a little rusty, maybe be, you know, a little lower energy or, you know, maybe people just being at various energy levels. But I think that's just such a great point, though, um, that I think prior to this, many people with their workplaces may have like taken for granted that like, you know, really intentional, like you said, like, let's all just come together, you know, come together to break bread just for the sake of it, you know, because like sometimes it's just like, well, we're all working together, you know, we're all in the same office and all that. Um, And you might sort of, you know, somebody brings in something to eat and people are just kind of like, you know, grab a bite, take it back to their desk, eat lunch at their desk or, you know, those sort of things. But like being like, hey, let's block off time. Let's do like happy hour, lunch, coffee break, like whatever it is. This is social time, like because, yeah, we've been without it entirely for two years. So, uh, you know, as much as, uh, you know, doing these things over video calls, you know, is trying to help kind of uh, mitigate the damage, like, you know, I, I didn't partake in a lot of that because I was kind of just like, oh, I'll just keep biding my time, you know. Uh, and yeah, I mean, now, like, because of, you know, I've just been sort of like stir crazy, ready, ready to get out and just realizing, though, it, it does take uh, a lot to kind of get back into the rhythm. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that. So um, is there anything else, I guess, that you're sort of uh, seeing, I guess, as some of those like the struggles as a. Uh, yeah, because we are in such a like a weird place because it is like right. a lot of like, you know, basket mandates and things are, you know, relieving. But, uh, you know, certainly not through the pandemic in its entirety. But I think we're, you know, hopefully looking forward with a bunch more optimistic lens than we had, uh, you know, in months prior. 
Yeah, I was just listening to a podcast where uh, Dr. Donald Soule and Charlie Soule, who just came out with an article in MIT Sloan Management Review about this whole idea of the great resignation and that it's toxic culture that is the main reason people are leaving. Um, And one of the most important ways they said to try to bring that back around was related to this issue of, of collaboration and social opportunities at the workplace. Um, And also, you know, we're going to have to think about what, what distance and, and hybrid work looks like. And particularly for staff, I think there's been a lot of resentment over time that faculty work wherever they want all the time, but staff are always expected to fully be in the office at all times. And so what is that going to look like going forward for universities, I think is an important question. Um, And, you know, can certain things happen in more hybrid formats going forward and when they always had to be um, right there in person, like dissertation defenses and things like that. So, you know, I think there's a lot we're going to try to be making sense of around what workplace looks like. How do we create universities that are vibrant and don't feel like empty buildings like they often do right now, but um, also be aware that, you know, there might be some need to balance some hybrid work going forward for all parts of a university, not just faculty. We've been doing hybrid work forever, so um, there's going to need to be some balance around that, I think. Because I guess that makes me think, like, a bit, too, of, like, yeah, I'm huge on sort of... um what I think in the near term will be definitely a lot more um, of kind of the hybrid university and, you know, doing things where uh, you can kind of flex it as needed or as it's maybe just better served for various things. So, um, you know, some, I know some offices and teams are doing, you know, just occasional work from home, home days uh, as sort of a set thing or uh, as folks need to, and they can still keep up with things that are going on. Uh, and then like I said, like there's dissertation defense, like it could be just like, as needed, you know, somebody could, you know, toggle into that uh, modality for things and certainly a whole other episode, but like, you know, for students as well, just like accessing services and taking their courses and, you know, things aren't so kind of locked in. Um, But yeah, you know, we kind of all saw what was possible, you know, all matters of life really, but for for faculty and staff, just institutions at large, seeing that, uh, yeah, you kind of have the tool and sort of the, the ability to, uh, utilize kind of a you know the hybrid format uh, in whatever way makes sense. You know every team's going to be different, but uh, you know there was not much of it two years ago, and uh, I'm glad to see just even just a little bit more of it because I think it is just good for team morale and then um, just for for everyone to be able to keep doing the work uh, and keep getting access to what they need to, uh, you know, no matter where they are. So. And you have to balance that with how are we building trust and community? And so how do you do both at the same time? Because without that sense of, of trust, which I think comes from spending time together, understanding one another, having the extra space in meetings to explain how things are happening and why um, that is in, really important in terms of morale and in terms of um, service to the university and the institution. So both are going to need to happen at the same time somehow. Yeah, definitely agree. I mean, just with anything, uh, the care and consideration that goes into implementation is something I've been th- thinking about a lot. Uh, so whether there's, yeah, like a new tool or uh, yeah, a new process, just making sure that you take that time and 
make it clear, you know, talk about it in the meeting, send the email afterwards, have, you know, the information written down so people can uh, review it after the fact and ask questions and all that good stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, well said. You know, I think this is kind of the biggest question that I wanted to, you know, spend some time with is really just like, what advice would you give to staff members working with faculty? I think we, we've already sort of been uh, touching on it, but you know, if there is just like, you know, one important thing, one best tip, or just if you want to cover a couple of different things, uh, yeah, we can kind of sit with this one for a little bit. In my book, I talk about how faculty and anyone to be successful in their jobs needs to break that unspoken code of what's really happening. And I think in a university um, and in any institution, there's just the most important knowledge is not necessarily written down somewhere. And what I try to teach faculty is that usually the best staff members are the ones who have all the keys to the code. <laughs> and so I think the more that faculty can kind of take the time to teach faculty and realize that don't assume we know anything. Assume that we are completely ignorant as to how things happen and why they happen and all the things um, and try to teach us why or how or what's going on or give us more background, then we're able to hopefully be able to be more helpful and not ask as many strange questions. <laughs> so, um, you know, we really view staff as the key and particularly staff have been there a long time to give us that, that insider knowledge as to how things really work. Um, so to the extent to which staff are willing to share that or volunteer that um, and help to teach faculty that they actually have that knowledge, because we usually don't. We usually are pretty um, pretty ignorant around how processes actually happen. So I think that would be a really big, important one. Um, I think also, yeah, just realizing that... Um, that bureaucracy is inherently illogical. And so it doesn't make sense to faculty members a lot of time. And then that just creates confusion. So realize that we are working from um, a particular mindset and encouraged to do that in terms of being rewarded in our research of being highly logical, but that politics and bureaucracy are not. So, so um, faculty are trying to work often in a framework that is very confusing to them. And, um, and as much as, you know, we're, we're considered to be smart in some ways, we're highly ignorant in others. And so take the time, um, to explain and, and teach us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a point well emphasized. And I think like, I've just always found like when you take that time, I mean, what, like just to like talk shop, like you can really mm -hmm. have some powerful moments together and then. Yeah, to like make sure that people understand, because I think it could be that, you know, certain people it clicks for, you know, uh, one way, but then you take a little bit of extra time and th that just like avoids friction, resentment, you know, frustrations and just, you know, increases efficiency and all that good stuff. So I think, um, yeah, it, it's just a, a good point of view and sort of method for working generally, but I think especially in this context, because I think it, it just... For whatever reason, like just the the history too broadly, like I feel like there's so much contention or, you know, just that misunderstanding or assumptions made about, you know, you have academic affairs and sort of like student affairs or, you know, however it's sort of like broken down where they can just feel like two separate worlds uh, mm -hmm. on the same campus. So mm -hmm. uh, anything 
to bridge those gaps, create opportunities for engagement and kind of mutual understanding. And yeah, I mean, it, even those like social times where it could be there, which is like, this is for the university community. It's not just for, you know, any one segment of it. Well, I think on everything that we've covered, you know, I always like to give an opportunity, you know, certainly we'll have ways to connect with you and your work and your book. Uh, but anything else, uh, resource wise, things that are grabbing your attention uh, on this topic? Uh, yeah, like books, articles, podcasts, etc. Um, so that we can uh, include it in the show notes. Um, I tend to be really inspired and learn a ton from Brene Brown and her Dare to Lead podcast. And I think um, folks from the university administrative side of things would really benefit a lot from understanding um, that sort of leadership perspective and her Dare to Lead book. I think one com- one component from that 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 I use in this book is just this idea of what are the core values by which we live by and how do we know what they are and can we share them with others so that we can understand one another better in, in terms of negotiation and, and working together in, in terms of leadership. Um, I think that is an incredibly helpful thing. Um, I go back to core values a lot in my coaching as well around that idea of purpose and what what is the work that we do as leaders uh, in the workplace that charges our batteries versus drains them. And I think that the work that charges our batteries aligns closer with our values, closer with what we feel that we are um, brought here to do, what our purpose feels like. And so the extent to which we can understand what other people feel that their talents are, their values are, the more we can really pull them into work that is meaningful but also as a leader, it can help to model reflecting what that looks like. And a- another piece of that is, is she talks a lot about vulnerability in the workplace, which requires an enormous sense of trust, but it also requires leadership in universities and, and anywhere to be willing to talk through the mistakes that have been made and the struggles and not just the successes. And it's modeling that process and bringing people in and taking the time to have collaborative and shared governance and, and making sure, again, the how of decisions matters a lot. So um, I think Brene Brown is a really great resource of not just herself, but then the podcast brings in all the, all the great leadership gurus in an extremely thoughtful way. And since she's a faculty member or has been, she brings a real research base to it that I think is different than other leadership podcasts out there. Yeah, I mean, it, this is not the first time that uh, she's been mentioned as a great resource because I think in this context, like, there is certainly an aspect of vulnerability of acknowledging, you know, misunderstandings, shortcomings, frustration, you know, feeling comfortable to voice those, you know, and discussing how they might have come about, but also working in earnest to make them better, which can be kind of messy and hard, uh, but is important work uh, because I think there's some level of like weird warped like social contract where there's just sort of like, you know, just avoid each other, ignore each other and just like pretend like there's no problem because there's like no relationship. Like it's just, so it's like, you know, you could just keep your head down and just sort of like, you know, keep on moving on. And then, yeah, it's like, you know, the world keeps turning, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a reason uh, why, you know, there's sometimes these gaps in the working relationships between faculty and staff. And I think, 
they are now they're not, they're not insurmountable caps, you know, like uh, oftentimes I think it's just because there's just a void of uh, engagement. So I think um, I think that, that would be a great resource, especially if folks are feeling kind of vulnerable or uh, anxious around wanting to kind of try to kickstart catalyze uh, a relationship that maybe was not uh, super strong to begin with. Um, that is going to be, you know, I think some helpful guidance and structure to how to uh, kind of persevere through the the messiness of, uh, you know, rebuilding some of those uh, uh, relationships and everything. So I think another really important concept is, that I really want to push with higher education is this notion of of coaching as a professional development tool. Coaching has been used in the executive world for a very long time. It's not just for C-suite, but you know, for all levels of, of leadership training. And um, the idea of coaching is, first of all, a much more individualized experience of meeting somebody where they are. But it also is this notion of, of helping people to define themselves as leaders or define themselves as faculty members. Um, there, there are increasing numbers of universities that are allowing faculty to use their startup funds to hire a coach and not just leadership coaches, but writing coaches. Um, and also folks like me who will really try to help academics to puzzle through the system that's very complex and, and, and whenever someone, whether it be a staff member or a faculty member gets a poor performance review or what have you, um, often that person investing in that personalized um, partnering with a coach is, is money that allows retention to be successful. And, and you know, the, the, the churn of people is far more expensive than the, the amount invested in trying to help someone to find their way and be successful. So um, we're seeing it being used more in higher ed, but I think um, the broader embrace and encouragement of faculty using their funds to use this and when promoting, you know, faculty are often then brought into the administrative side of things. And that transition is one that needs some personalized support. So, um, so leaning into that um, acknowledgement that there's some training and transition needed, and to invest in that so that it's successful, is um, is, is a really valuable concept that that the um, corporate side of things has known for a long time, but higher ed is just starting to understand the value. Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a good point about you know uh, seeking out and utilizing coaching. If just like you know, if it's just not been something you know historically as well utilized as it could or should have been, because it makes me think too, where there's just like you know uh, an aspect of vulnerability where it comes from, like you know, sort of checking your ego, knowing like, hey, I could use some help with writing. I could use some help with mm-hmm. you know any number of things. Being clear on what that is and going into that relationship with a coach again earnestly being like i you know i'm going to engage in this process and uh not just try to like check a box and be like yeah i saw a coach you know whatever cool you know did their you know did it and it's been there done that whatever uh so you kind of do have to humble yourself i think before you kind of enter into that and then just be clear with what you need help with but um It's a cultural thing because I think in some fields in the entrepreneurial world and in some parts of the corporate world, 
everyone has a coach. <laughs> it's, it's not like a, you know, it, it's part of the process of understanding how to move to excellence. And it, um, and so I think a cultural encouragement around that and normalizing around that, um, is, is really, really helpful. And that would come from the administration side of things or the listing of here are the ways that you can use your startup money. You know, one of them could be hiring a coach, you know, so, so there are, there are just ways to signal that, that would take the burden off of departments and, um, and, you know, faculty fairs and otherwise to provide, you know, whole scale professional development, whereas faculty are so, you know, a nursing faculty is very different than a math faculty and an education faculty. So that personalized um, sense of what what is the skill set that each person needs to be successful when you're supposed to be teaching and researching and collaborating and serving on committees may be different. So um, it'll it would help it would it would help the university find success in who they're investing in, as well as on the administrative and staff side. Yeah, that's what's funny because like yeah, just making it clear what the you know the funds there that you're talking about could be spent on because it's like otherwise. I mean, yeah, like they'll either just not use them or just kind of shoot from the hip and do whatever with it or ask other people who maybe also did not make, have it made clear to them that they could use, you know, those funds for coaching mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Um, right. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think sort of the final point I'll, I'll make on this is kind of just like, you know, honoring the responsibility and sort of gravity of, you know, working in higher education, supporting students and all that kind of stuff. It's just like, you know, it, it's, we're all kind of works in progress, but why wouldn't you want to do the best work that you can? And, you know, a, a way to achieve that is through, you know, coaching and utilizing resources and, you know, uh, asking for feedback and uh, all those sort of things. And really just, uh, yeah, just keeping that critical eye, you know, because sometimes it really is just kind of working at the margins, you know, uh, continually to continuously improve. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be kind of large, dramatic change. It's also critical as a, as a, as the central part of an equity strategy. So there's such a focus on DEI work right now. And I think universities have thought a lot about how to try to recruit people to to come to a university, but less knowing what to do to retain them. And um, I think coaching is is a key strategy of retention. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. There's a lot of aspects to what we're getting at here. Um, helps so many people find greater success. And, you know, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach about what somebody is going to need support with uh, throughout their professional journey, uh, whether they are faculty and staff. But then now I feel like I'm almost like in my head of like, you know, you can have, you know, colleagues helping each other to do better and sort of, you know, you know, the rising tide raises all ships kind of thing. Cause I think, you know, so much around like an equity and everything is like being able to kind of see yourself at a place or have like a community of people that have had similar experiences. And that might be that there's, you know, a community, you know, with, with staff or with faculty, a mixed, group and those sort of things. So keeping that open mind in that regard too, and then allowing for such a sort of like open-ended use of like the, you know, the money for faculty with the the startup funds and things that you're mentioning, like, you know, not having it be like, well, faculty always get, you know, this sort of thing. It's like, well, you know, I may be a first generation college student, you know, you know like the experience of being mm -hmm. a faculty mm -hmm. is just completely new to me as has everything else in higher ed, you know, so it's like, I do need more of this than someone else may. Uh, so I, I just like the idea of 
really empowering uh, each person to get the support that they need uh, to be successful. And then, um, yeah, I mean, all the other things we've mentioned, you know, around founding community at your institution and yeah, so, so much good stuff. And, um, you know, as we wind down, I think we, we've already like had maybe a, a couple of great uh, kind of calls to action and stuff here, but, you know, I'll let you have the final word, any final thought or call to action on this topic to end the episode. I would say in terms of a call to action, I would just suggest that anyone really think through as this time where we're trying to make sense of what is our next steps in terms of our own relationship to our work. What is that piece of the work that really, really inspires us and brought us to this in the first place? How can we bring that forward and shine it more? And how can we encourage the people that we work with to help them to think through and and make that connection again? It's almost like we're rekindling relationships coming out of the pandemic. Um, and, And also realizing that we just need to be more sensitive to one another, a little kinder and aware, as you were saying earlier, that we're learning how to function together again. And what gifts or what strengths do you have around and what responsibilities do you have or what privileges do you have in a space to encourage and support others as they are trying to make sense of this new world as well? Absolutely. Well said. I think that does tie together a lot of what we're talking about. I think we have this opportunity as things have kind of reset. And, you know, I'm very thankful that kind of society was moving in a good direction, you know, as incrementally as it was towards being more inclusive, uh, of more people. And with this opportunity to kind of reset, it's, yeah, really trying to embody that mindset that you uh, just said of, you know, being more welcoming and encouraging and supportive of what people need. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, being a faculty member and all the great kind of perks and, you know, aspects of it, like we want, you know, uh, all kinds of people to feel as though that is something that they can uh, aspire towards and give them whatever they need to be uh, successful and to be, you know, great leaders on their campus and for their colleagues and for their students. And um, yeah, so this is very uh, educational for me. I I really appreciate you uh, sharing all that you did and taking some time out for the podcast here. And like I said, we'll have ways to uh, connect with you and all that you do and all that we talked about uh, down in the show notes. But uh, yeah, just thanks again so much for your time. This is a really great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek podcast.